Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Get the champagne ready. The NBA Finals are here. Welcome to the NBA Finals. Let's raise our glasses and our rings to the two phenomenal teams left standing. My goodness! Here's the high-stakes action to thrilling moments we can't miss. He ties the game at the buzzer. And to crowning our next champion. Here's a toast to the NBA Finals. The 2024 NBA Finals presented by YouTube TV continue on ABC. Hey folks, this is Kevin. Just a few words before we start. Well, you know, mailing and shipping can be challenging if you're making constant trips to the post office, but if you use Stamps.com, you can get all the services of the post office from your desk. With Stamps.com, you just use your own computer to buy and print official U.S. postage for any envelope, package, any class of mail. They send you a digital scale, and that automatically calculates the postage. And with just one click, you can track your packages, send shipment notifications, and more. You never have to go to the post office again. We use Stamps.com, and we love it. So right now, use our promo code. Code risk for this special offer. It's a no-risk trial plus a hundred and ten dollar bonus offer that includes the digital scale and up to fifty-five dollars free postage. Don't wait. Go to stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in risk. That's stamps.com. Enter risk. Now here's the show. Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is the Magnetic Fields behind me now. We're calling today's episode Queer. It'll be the first time ever that we feature an episode uh, only of stories from the LGBT community. We just made it through June, which was Pride Month, and it was quite an eventful month for so many people in so many ways. I think that the three stories that we have for this episode really show the spectrum. The way that sexuality is just such an infinitely vast 
affector of so many different kinds of experiences in our lives. In a little bit, we're going to hear from the remarkable Chris Gray, also known as Just Incredible. Chris really is an incredible person, a genderqueer artist and a multi-talented one at that. But before that, we're going to hear a story from me. This was, um, this was kind of an impromptu story that I hadn't really been planning on telling that night at the Risk Live show in New York, but you'll hear why in just a moment. We call this one All the Rage. A pity she does not exist A shame he's not a fag The only girl I ever loved Was Andrew and Greg There is no hope of love for me For here on I go stag The only girl I'll ever love Is Andrew and Greg Andrew and Greg Andrew and story is going to be especially raw tonight. Uh, and when I say raw, I don't mean my usual kind of raw, like kinky raw. I mean raw as in brand new because it happened at 2.30. <laughs> um, I am always telling my students, my storytelling students, that stories are really how we make meaning out of our experiences. Even when we're asleep, our brain continues to say, all right, I was there, and now I'm here, and I hope I'm going there. But the tricky thing is that whatever happens next is usually not what you're expecting or hoping for. And that's why what happened at 2.30 today made my heart feel like it was bursting into the rest of my insides with happiness. Let me start about, ooh, five months ago. I'm in my neighborhood of Bushwick, Brooklyn. I'm walking toward the decalb stop of the L train, and all of a sudden I hear this explosion of screaming from across the street. I hear, Faggot! Faggot! Get the fuck out of here, you fucking cocksucking queer! Go back to San Francisco! And I'm looking around, and I notice everyone's jaws are dropped. Like, where did this burst of rage come from? And then I realize, it's all being directed at me. <laughs> I'm studying this man all of a sudden who's right across the street. He's got like a, a cap, a fisherman's cap on that has like that brim that covers the eyes so it keeps most of the face in shadow. Like Woody Allen sometimes wears hats like that to like keep everyone from knowing who he is in the streets. And he's wearing sunglasses. He's got a gray beard. He looks a little bit like Tommy Chong does today. Maybe Latino, but a lot less laid back than Tommy Chong, right? The most distinctive thing about this guy is the energy is the hate because it's all throughout his body his limbs are shaking he looks like one of those people who's speed walking but it's not exercise it's just this hate that's raging out of him so he turns around a corner i turn around a corner and i think to myself all right that man was out of his mind 
And, you know, within two blocks, he'll probably be screaming at a poor Jew or something, right? So, whatever. I went back into my iPod world and back into the minutia of my life and forgot all about it. Two weeks later, I'm walking toward the decal stop of the L train when I hear way off, about a block away, maybe a football field between us, this screaming happening off in the distance. Faggot! Faggot! Get the fuck out of here! We're gonna get rid of you, you motherfucking cocksucking queer! And I look around, people's jaws are dropped, like, where did this come from? And I see from a whole block away. It's aimed again right at me. And I'm thinking, holy shit, this guy, whether he's homeless or an actual neighbor, he's got it out for me. There's something going on here. I've never seen this guy, never looked at this guy, never spoken to this guy, but I mean something to this guy. And I didn't want to really think about it because it started reminding me of some unpleasant things. It reminded me that my husband, who is a uh, black belt, <laughs> is no longer with me to walk with me to the subway. Uh, it reminded me that, you know, I get upset sometimes that I'm still so poor at 43 that I got to live way out at the eighth stop on the L train while all my friends are successful enough to live closer to the city. But most of all, it reminds me of when I was five years old, sitting there in the dining room, looking at the fibers of the red carpet and listening to the monkeys on the little record player there and realizing that I now know what the words fag and gay mean. And that even though I'm just five, I won't be in kindergarten for another year I know those words mean me. I know that I have a crush on the boy next door and that I want to see him naked and that that means I'm a gay fag and that that means inside me I am disgusting, I am deformed, I am something that people passionately hate. So I put it out of my mind again. And a few weeks later, it happens again. And a few weeks later, it happens again. And it seems to be getting angrier and angrier every time it happens. But there's a new twist. He starts saying, you're following me. You're following me. You're stalking me. Like, what's the chance that two men who live within four blocks of the decab stop of the L train might run into each other near the decab stop of the L train? <sighs> So, I tried to put it out of my mind again, because what have I got, you know? I, you know, it sticks and stones, that hasn't happened yet. I feel like we might be going there. I feel like this kind of like grease fire that goes through with the veins of his body every time he sees me, it might mean a rock or a fist or a weapon coming my way at some point, but what am I going to do? I'm a grown man. Complain about, you know, some lunatic who's just calling me names in the street. May 10th. May 10th. I'm coming back from the dentist at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. I'm exiting the L train, the decal stop. And for the first time, 
we're on the same side of the street and walking toward each other. He starts screaming, Farrah, Farrah, go back to San Francisco, you're following me. And then I know, oh, fuck, he is rushing me. He's coming at me. And before I know it, he's taking a punch at me. He hits me in the chin, and it lands mostly on the shoulder. And then he just keeps screaming, faggot, 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 as he goes down the block. But he can see that I'm calling 911 right then. The cops come, and of course he's gone by then. So they just take a long description of it. Now, I am afraid to leave my motherfucking apartment, okay? I've got 911 on speed dial and ready to go on the phone in my hand everywhere I walk. I've got Mace in the other hand ready to pull the trigger. I have alerted everyone I know on Facebook and Twitter. And everywhere I go now, instead of listening to music, <laughs> which I do, that's what I do to prepare this podcast, is I listen to music walking around my neighborhood. That's my joy. That's my meditation. That's how I curate the show. No more. Now, wherever I'm walking, I am looking everywhere like a soldier. I start deciding I'll, I'll try using the subway stop further down, the Jefferson stop, and just take a long walk every time I have to go into the city. But on May 11th, I see him again. He sees me seeing him. He sees me dial 911 immediately, and he goes, oh, yeah, call the cops, you little faggot. And then he ducks into the hospital to get away. So I'm like, I've got a real situation here. And here's why you should tell everyone you know if you're in a situation of being harassed like this. Because even with the police, it really does matter who you know. I started telling friends, I was at this dinner party two Sundays ago, and it was all new people new guys that I didn't know. So it was all funny stories, and I didn't want to bring this story out and sour the evening, but at the end of the evening, it just kind of slipped out on, of me because it was on my mind. And one of them said, oh, wait a minute. I've got friends in the NYPD. We will make sure that there are hate crimes detectives assigned to this and that they are on the street with you, ASAP, looking for this guy. So another day goes by where I'm able to see him without him seeing me so well. So I take his photograph going into the gourmet deli and I go into the gourmet deli and I talk to those guys and those guys say, oh God, yeah. He blew up the other day here when we had to call the cops on him. So I'm like, all right, the guy is becoming a danger to other people in the neighborhood too. Well, today I meet Detective Smart and Detective Sanchez. I figured because I usually see him in the middle of the afternoon, that would be a good time to meet. We get in the car and we just start riding around the neighborhood, mostly around the hospital. <sighs> but after about 40 minutes, I'm so dejected. It just feels so fruitless trying to catch someone randomly in the middle of an afternoon out to take a walk, whatever. Nothing, nothing, nothing. We're not seeing anything. And finally, the detectives are like, all right. We gotta give up on this. I said, well, why don't you at least talk to the guys in the deli first, and they can maybe have some more information on you based on his causing a ruckus there. They're like, okay, we'll do that. They go into the deli, start talking to the guys. I step out of the deli. 
as the detectives are walking out of the deli and wrapping up and being like, well, too bad we couldn't help you out today, buddy. There he is, right across the street. He doesn't see me yet, but I see him. I say to the detectives, that's him. That's the guy. They're like, you sure? I'm like, I'm absolutely sure. (laughs) And for the first time ever, I start walking toward him. I start walking across the street. The detectives are behind me. And as soon as he sees that I'm walking toward him, you better believe he explodes. Faggot! Faggot! I'm going to fucking get you! Blah, 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 blah. And the detectives are like, okay then. And that is why I can share this photograph with you right now. That is Frank Rodriguez. He lives near the decal stop of the L train. (laughs) And I now have a restraining order against him. I don't know if he'll be out on bail tomorrow or stay living in my neighborhood or what, but I do know that this little trajectory I've been living through for the past several months came to about the best place it possibly could get at about 2.30 this afternoon. Thank you very much. So last summer I spent a month on Fire Island during an art residency, which is an amazing opportunity. I actually had never been to Fire Island before. It has a sort of mythology as a place, this gay space, but also sort of specifically as a place for gay sex. So I was entering into this month-long experiment, basically, with a kind of interior look at gay male culture that I had never had before. Depending on who I talk to, my time on Fire Island was either going to be the most exciting sexual adventure of my life or absolutely the most embarrassing experience ever. As soon as I found out that I was going on an art residency, of course what I do is I call my parents because I'm sort of still trying to convince them and maybe even myself that being an artist is like an actual tangible profession. So I get really excited like, oh my gosh, you know, I, I've gotten this art residency and, uh, and of course they, they get really excited too, so they tell other people. So my father told his, uh, he's got one friend who's like his gay friend. At this point, it's like every time my father mentions this friend, he tells me, you know he's gay. Every time he says this to me, I'm like, yeah, I know, I know, I know. At this point, I know that this is your gay friend. I totally understand. Anyway, so I told him that I was going on this residency. I spoke to him like a week later and he was like, oh, I, you know, I told my friend that you were going to Fire Island and, oh, and he said you were just going to have the best time, you know, he was, that's a great place and that's his old stomping grounds, you know, because he's gay. (laughs) Yeah. And then we sort of awkwardly pause. And where I think both of us are sort of thinking, yeah. And it's not necessarily that it would be shocking to, for my father to think of me as gay, because I have come out to my parents 
um, as, as being gay when I was 19. Uh, however, when I came out as gay, I was coming out to them as a gay woman. I am trans and I was assigned female and I was raised girl. So the first time that I came out to my parents as gay, it was because I was identified as a dyke. And I was coming out to them by telling them, you know, I have a girlfriend. However, the advent of my starting to take testosterone and the physical changes, like I had top surgery, as well as the fact that I have now a full beard, these are new things, new signifiers, uh, both for me and for my parents. So coming out as a gay woman to my parents, that was sort of the first one, but I've come out as many different things, as trans, as genderqueer, as poly, as kink. So each of these new layers of identity, especially with my identity of, as genderqueer, because even though I present and sound very masculine, I don't really identify as male or female. But the idea that someone would go from female to other, uh, not necessarily from female to male, is something that really throws them off. So the idea that I would be heading off to a gay destination, a place that's specifically known for gay sex, but a kind of gay sex that perhaps my parents haven't imagined as part of my lifestyle yet. I think that was the pregnant pause between my father and I. So I was trying to also sort of apply what I know about gay male culture to my impending immersion. And when I was uh, living in Baltimore, I spent many years as a bartender at gay bars. And there, you know, there are sort of lessons that I learned and things that I picked up really quickly. One of them was dick, right? Like, gay guys, dick, 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 dick. Like, everything is about dick. It's about the dick that they saw, it's about their dick, it's about where they're gonna put their dick, it's about what they're doing with each other's dicks. It was all about dicks. Uh, but there was also this sort of underlying current in that that could be illustrated by this story. I was behind the bar one time and uh, it was a lesbian night. So we would have lesbian night, you know, and all of the ladies would come out and that would be sort of dyke night at the gay male bar. I was setting up my bar and uh, one of our regulars, uh, a guy probably in his 30s or 40s, was sitting at the bar and he turned to someone else and in response to, the, to, to this being the dyke night, he said, to, um, he said to the guy sitting next to him, ugh, this is about vaginas, ugh, disgusting. I came screaming out of one of those 30 years ago and I've never been back since. What a dick. So I also understood that in the absence of penis, there was a kind of loathing. I really had the sense reinforced over and over and over again that vaginas or bodies that were different were really frowned upon. Um, guys would cruise me. Cruising looked a little something like this. I'd be out at a bar with my friends. We'd be hanging out or I'd be working and someone would be staring at me from across the bar and then they would approach me and then they'd hit on me or say hello and I would respond. I would say hi and they would be kind of thrown off because they would hear in my voice a sort of femininity that they weren't expecting and I would get these kinds of responses where guys would be like oh man you're a girl 
Oh, that sucks. I thought you were so hot before I knew you were a girl. And that was all the kind of baggage that I was carrying into this experience on Fire Island, thinking about how to enter that space. I was, I was worried about navigating Fire Island as a cunted creature. So as soon as I got there, I, I was trying to figure out how does that space work? How will it work for me? And you know, there were things like a space in between two of the neighborhoods on Fire Island that's called the Meat Rack. And it's a magical sex forest. And I was thinking about how to, how to negotiate these spaces without any training. I had no compass for this. It was like either someone was going to tell me or show me or I really felt like I was lost. And that it may be hopeless. I may never get laid on Fire Island. In fact, one of my friends, you know, I was talking um, to people about my sort of hang-ups before I went to Fire Island, and I had a friend who said this to me. He was like, well, good luck getting laid there, because you're all holes and no poles. You know, the problem here with thinking about maleness or femaleness is that there it's cutting bodies down a really false binary line, which is to say that many bodies regardless of their identity, don't quite fit into the box of 100% maleness or 100% femaleness. On top of which, you know, there are plenty of people who have bodies that function differently. Cisgendered guys who have uh, erectile issues or, you know, p folks that have different genitals, people that have different bodies, guys that have uh, different body weights. You know, these are all sort of realities. Na and nature loves diversity. Nature will show us that there are many more than just two of anything. And when we kind of default to this gender binary for our identity, especially when it's breaking down how we cruise for and how we have access to sex, then it's, uh, it sort of has the same problematic structure as breaking things down along a gender line in terms of uh, housing or employment opportunities or educational opportunities it becomes sort of tainted by this problem of social justice. So the first week that we're there, we attend an event that's called Whip It Out Wednesdays. Whip It Out Wednesdays is a simple premise, really. You go to the bar, you order a drink, which is massively overpriced, and if you pull down your pants and show your dick to the bartender, you get a discount on that drink. So, given the pricing structure of the beverages, it's really advantageous to show your genitals to the barkeep. So, uh, I was standing at the bar ordering my drink next to um, three other guys, and uh, one by one, as the drinks arrived, they unzipped and showed their dick to the bartender. And when it got to me, he said, all right, your turn. And I just reached into my pants and I pulled out my packer, and I set it on the bar. Now, for listeners who don't know what a packer is, uh, this is a, basically a prosthetic penis that you might wear in your pants so that you have, a, like, approximate a bulge. So I just reached into my pants and pulled, literally pulled my dick off and out and set it onto the bar. The bartender just started laughing and he's like, oh no, honey, we don't take fake dick here. If you want a discount, you better show us your dick. And so I just 
I just felt like, well, I got to give this guy what he's asking for. And so I unzipped my pants and I pulled them down, revealing my my genitals, my vagina, basically. And he was like, oh, um, oh, oh, okay, that's definitely a first. And uh, to his credit, he did give me a discount on my drink. And as a bonus for showing two sets of genitals, I didn't have to pull down my pants any other time that night. So that was very gracious of him. The first time that I showed up at an underwear party on Fire Island, I understood immediately that showing up in my underwear uh, connotated consent. So by being there scantily clad, you're basically giving everyone else in that crowd the go-ahead to touch you, to grope you, to reach their hands into your pants. Uh, they will rub their swollen genitals on any exposed part of your body. And this could be really uh, terrifying. But I didn't find it to be that way. I actually was really excited by the experience of having my body be desired. And I felt like it was really intoxicating in a way. So the first Friday, I showed up at this underwear party and I'm in my underwear and people are grabbing me and jamming their hands down my pants. And I was also really confronted by the fact that while I'm being cruised by guys and cruising that I also have to negotiate my body and the difference in my body that may not be otherwise apparent. So I was doing just that with this individual, a very handsome guy and he was hitting on me and things were going swimmingly. I was very attracted to him. He was wearing these tiny little red boxer briefs that were talked and pulled in the front. He asked, like, what are you into? Are you top? Are you bottom? You know, do you suck? Do you fuck? It was all about negotiating, and it wasn't even something that was thinly veiled. I told him I was trans and that I don't have a penis like in the way that he has, and his bulge got bigger. And he said, that's awesome. And that was pretty much the best response I had ever gotten in person from someone who was gay male identified. It's sort of like the difference between being turned on in spite of and being turned on because of. And he followed that by saying, you know, I've had experiences with trans guys, I'm really into it, and I like boys like you. Boner! <laughs> right? Like, what could be better than hearing that? Like, I like boys like you. I was like, I would like to suck your cock. So we made our way into the back room. The back room is kind of this place, if you've never been to a back room in a gay bar where sex is happening, it's a bunch of bodies and they're writhing and they're sucking and they're fucking and it's all happening all around you. Like the guy that is sucking someone else's dick is basically rubbing up against your leg because you're standing so close to one another. And so I went into the back room with the boy in the red shorts and he gingerly guided me to my knees. But before I could even think about how dirty the floor was, I started to feel 
knocking on my head from the side, from the back. And I sort of was like looking around like, what's going on here? And I quickly realized that in a room full of people sucking and fucking and writhing, that if you get on your knees, everybody around you will try to put their dick in your mouth. And this could sound super rapey, but that wasn't my experience there. In fact, I felt like being in the middle of a room full of all of that desire and a lot of it focused on me to be the object of desire was really intoxicating. I was surprised many times over during my month on Fire Island, and a lot of the surprise came from my own thoughts and ideas about gay male culture. Like, I had lots of assumptions about gay men that just ended up not being true, or ended up being a little bit antiquated. It would be like thinking about any other culture in a flat way. Which is to say that there are probably lots of gay men who will, till the day they die, talk shit about vaginas or be really disgusted by bodies that are different than theirs. And I had many positive sexual experiences in my month on Fire Island. And so I was surprised many times, just like the boy in the red shorts, um, there were a lot of other people that had experience with trans guys that were positive experiences. And I also had to confront my assumptions about what my desires were. Because growing up as a diker, as a lesbian, I, I also had this kind of body loathing about penises. And there was also this sort of reciprocal hatred for male bodies within gay female culture. When I was in that culture and I was getting turned on and I was having sex with gay men, I had to confront my own assumptions about what my desires were. And that was like kind of critically refiguring my sexuality, which is so exciting to find yourself in your 30s having grown to think of yourself as someone who is radical and queer and sexual and still being able to learn and grow and change your sexuality and evolve. So right along with my identity evolving as someone who is genderqueer, so too is my sexuality evolving. I saw two earthworms mating I was about to use them for baiting Then I saw their tricks No holes and no pricks Hermaphrodite sex is amazing This is Risk. This is Nicole Reynolds behind me now with a song called Earthworms. Uh, a Risk fan named Allison on Twitter suggested I might use this song on this episode. And thank you to Allison for that. We just heard from Chris Gray, who you can find at kristingray.com. That's K-R-I-S-T-I-N-G-R-E-Y.com. I love the way that that story talks about things that people often leave unsaid a lot of the time. You know, I get emails every now and then from Risk fans who are aware that I've done some sex education, and they'll say things like, Kevin, I'm a straight man who can't reach orgasm. 
unless I'm anally stimulated. And you know what? I know that no woman in the world would ever want to do something like that for me. Or, Kevin, I'm a polyamorous woman, and I'm in love with a monogamously-minded woman, and I know there's no way we'll ever be able to see eye to eye. Or, Kevin, I'm a, I'm a gay man who doesn't top, and I'm trying to date a guy who only bottoms, and I know we'll never be able to function together. Well, that's why we need to be telling each other our stories. I'll tell you what, once you start sharing about those sorts of things... With your friends and lovers, you begin to see things like the fact that sex doesn't have to be about achieving an orgasm or even maintaining an erection or meeting any other expectation. Once you start opening up to the people you like, you'll see that the connections we make with people don't have to be 100% casual and meaningless or 100% lifelong marriage material. When you ask to hear people's stories, you'll see that, you know, no one is entirely this label or entirely that label. Everyone has odd idiosyncrasies in their sexual practices and preferences and bodies, and everyone has insecurities about it. But when we open up and share, we do discover new ways to deal with it all together. All righty then. I have spoken. (laughs) And that brings us to our last story today, which comes to us from the wonderful stand-up comic Cameron Esposito. You can find Cameron on two different podcasts. There is Put Your Hands Together, and there's Wham Bam Pow. She told this story at the Risk Live show in Los Angeles at the Nerd Melt Theater uh, a day or two after... DOMA, the Defense of Marriage Act, was struck down by the Supreme Court. And so this is the second story on this episode that was very much a reaction to something that had just happened. So without further ado, here she is at Risk Live at Nerd Melt. This is Cameron Esposito with a story we call Come Together. So many boxes and straight lines most of us are such a queer kind The worms do what they feel To me that is real And they don't give a damn if you mind Well, I'm going to... I wrote something... And it is a story, but it's also about some of the events this week. And I honestly don't know that I yet uh, trust myself to just like be able to talk about it openly because it's a, oh, I'm a lesbian. Obviously, look at my, me, look at me. (laughs) Look at my me. (laughs) And this is a huge, huge week for me. This is a huge, huge week for, uh, for gay folks. I'm actually like, I still can't even, I don't even, I, are you are we okay? Yesterday my girl I know I feel so I like I am like the toughest jean jacket you've ever met, but I might cry I might cry seventy-two times talking to you right now or never at all. Um, I'm not sure. My girlfriend and I just yesterday when we heard that we just stared at each other all day, just like, is there are we supposed to go somewhere? Like I just felt like we should go somewhere. Do you know what I mean? Like I didn't know. 
we literally like got in the car at that, and like I had a show last night, and we had, a, and then she, we just like got in the car and just drove towards West Hollywood. Like I think this is a thing. <laughs> if we just drive to there, then. <laughs> Especially being in LA, where you're like in your house, and you're just like we just we looked at each other. And then we work in separate rooms in our house because we both work from home. Um, and so we work in separate rooms and we just would like look at each other and then be like, all right, back to work and then go to work. And then one of us would just like tweet out and then the other one would you know, open the door and be like, hey, great tweet. You know, like that was the whole, it was just 12 hours of that. Um, so I'm going to uh, read something to you guys. I hope that's okay. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Yesterday morning, my dad called uh, to say that he was so, so happy for me and my girlfriend about the Doma news. I asked him if he was happy for himself, too, that he'd be able to see his daughter married. I'm so, so happy for me, too, he said. He was the first person I talked to yesterday. Well, besides my girlfriend, who was sleeping next to me when I checked Twitter and found out SCOTUS had left our civil rights under the tree. This is still really fresh. I'm overwhelmed and, like, tired um, from just years of fighting, like, holding my body tight. I don't know if that makes sense, like, in a, almost like a, just waiting uh, to be attacked or to be disappointed. I was a little gay kid who had no idea what gay meant. Growing up in a very Catholic family in the suburbs of Chicago, I had no reference point. No one I knew was gay. No one. I was Charlie Chaplin for Halloween one year, and I remember just being like overjoyed at the prospect of wearing a suit. Flanked by 75 gems and a zillion poodle-skirted girls, I walked house to house in a bowler hat and mustache, hauling an adult-sized cane along with me because it turns out they don't make Charlie Chaplin canes in child size. <laughs> Actually, an addendum, I uh, posted this on the internet today and somebody uh, posted a link to an Etsy site <laughs> that sells, so 10 years of progress. Uh, George Bush to this and... and uh, a chaplain cane for every kid, you know what I mean? It's really exciting news. I've always gotten along well with my family. They're quite literally my best friends. But as a kid, I didn't understand how to be what they expected. Some things I understood, like the importance of sticking together and leaving no one behind. There's an almost tribal element to my family. Like if you knew us, you could imagine us rushing a castle with raised swords and a cheer of Esposito! The part I didn't understand was how to be a girl, because being a girl sort of also meant being the opposite of a boy, and like the counterpoint to a boy, and I didn't understand how to be that. I didn't understand how to be what seemed to come so easy to my two sisters, or my parents, or everyone else around me. I didn't know how to be straight. I dated the captain of my high school football team, (laughs) and I was the mascot. Uh, a red bird. And he was a really nice guy. And he's a kind man now. He was my best friend at the time. Senior year, we had a school dance that was famous couples themed. And having literally been voted 
couple most likely to live happily ever after <laughs> by my graduating class, which still sticks with me to this day as being amazing. Like they looked at like the captain of the football team, just a dude with 4% body fat and a bird, and they were like, you're gonna make it! <laughs> like I love that, I just love that so much. So since we had been voted couple most likely to live happily ever after, we decided to go to this dance, this famous couple's dance, dressed as each other. Dress as ourselves, the most famous couple in our class. So he wore nylons and a wig, and I wore his football uniform. It was my favorite dance. <laughs> I had the time of my life, not because I was with my boyfriend, but because for the night I got to be my boyfriend. Like for the night, I was dating a girl, even if confusingly, that girl was uh, me, in a way. <laughs> There's a little Back to the Future-y and kind of Inception-y in there. <laughs> or like whatever sci-fi movie seems to apply and you're like, chose, you know, the call was coming up from inside the <laughs> nylons. The call was coming from inside the nylons. <laughs> My dad and I have a special bond. He sees a lot of himself in me, and I see it too. He coached me in every sport growing up. I like, resisted his coaching with every fiber of my being, but I played really hard to please him. We both argue our point for a living. He's a lawyer, I'm a comic. It's basically the same job. He's emotional and kind-hearted. He there was this one time, he walked for two miles across an open field between two highways to walk from a train station to this like swim meet. I was racing it. Like, that's the kind of dad he is. Like, he was the only dad at the swim meet in a suit and tie, but with, like, brambles in his hair. Like, because he had to be there. Like, he's, like, that kind of dad. And my mom was there, too, at that meet. Like, she and I are very close. She's funny as hell, and she's creative, and she's, like, generally cool. Like, like a cool, like, kind of a, like, a funny, like, she's dancing. She's a funny mom. But my dad is the outwardly emotional one. Like, he's the coach. For instance, he sang at my sister's wedding, and this wasn't weird, because he sang like every family dinner for the entirety of our, like just still now, he just like, if, and it's always like these show, like these, like these really, like these solos from like tunes, like, like I left my heart in San Francisco is apparently a song. Um, I only know that because of how many dinners, he like, he will get up even to address, it's beautiful to see. <laughs> He just loves his family so much, it's almost crushing sometimes. I came out to my dad passively. My parents were in my childhood bedroom sitting next to me on my bed. My mom asked, uh, Danny seems like more than a friend. Something going on between you two? I don't think I answered. Maybe I said we were dating. I, I, then I remember like the next thing is sitting next to my dad in the car in a Walgreens parking lot, and he was running in for something. He was upset, he was worried about my living so far away in Boston at the time, and also about my ruining my life uh, by being gay. You'll never have kids, he said. I could adopt, I said. If you're gay, I could never support you adopting a child, he said. My dad is adopted. Maybe that accounts for the extra love in my family. He got to make a family that looks like him. He got to create relatives he is actually related to. And so maybe he almost couldn't handle my reversing the process, like expanding out again, um, diluting the Esposito. 
or he thought I was going to hell. Either way, he couldn't imagine my adopting, even knowing from his own personal experience that adoption can lead to happy, connected families. I was devastated. My mom bounced back pretty quickly. She started to ask me questions, seek out friends with gay kids. My dad cried for five years. Every time we talked, he cried. During that time, I didn't feel comfortable in my family. I felt like the differences between us outweighed the similarities. I was being myself, getting to know myself, and this made my dad sad. It broke my heart. Then I stayed in Boston. In my first girlfriend, I finally found someone who understood that Charlie Chaplin part of me. Walking around the campus of my, co- my Catholic college, people would ask if we were sisters, which is hilarious, because I'm a white person, and my first girlfriend was Asian. <laughs> like, we weren't sisters, we were girlfriends. But I get it, also, like, I get it that people could sense something was similar between us, but they were, like, too Catholic to really understand what it was. <laughs> they were just like, they love Umbros, you know, like that. <laughs> It's not terrible to come out. Sometimes I think people, there's a misconception there. Like especially parents, I think, really worry about their kids when they're coming out. But it's not terrible. It's a relief. You've sensed your difference all along. Others have sensed it too. And now there's like finally a word for it or a neighborhood or a destination or a designation or even a slur. Like even a slur helps Because at least you know, at least I knew, and I found someone like me, another gay woman, and she understood. So yeah, in a way, I mean, we were family. I was visiting home, and we were at P.F. Chang's. My dad, yeah, thank you. (laughs) I distinctly remember lettuce cups uh, being served. My dad had just gotten a call, like maybe a week earlier. His birth family was trying to find him. Maybe he was 54 at the time. 54 years of living in support with supportive, loving parents that he was somehow different from in this way that maybe he couldn't actually describe. Like, how do you imagine people you don't know exist? And then one phone call and he knew. My dad has a sister, my aunt. She's adopted too. They grew up together. But since that phone call, he also has five brothers. They met in their 50s. He didn't get to meet his mom. She passed the year I was born. But I've seen a photo of her, and she looks like me. Or I guess I look like her. I've met one of his brothers. My dad's met all five. I guess I never realized until I met my dad's brother, Michael, that my dad and my aunt look nothing alike. I don't know if you, like, because you grow up and everybody's adults, so you just think, like, they don't, like, they just look like adult. Do you remember that? from life (laughs) like you don't think that your parents should look like they're siblings because why would they they're adults so they don't look anything alike but they are alike they're tough and kind and good hearted and Italian like really really Italian like super Italian like again the adopted I don't look as but a lot of chest hair from the, even the women. <laughs> Just one to two degrees in different directions in my family. 
I literally have relatives whose last name is Spazito. My last name is Esposito. Like it's, we're so Italian. We just found the other closest Italian name. And then that, those people married each other. Okay. Religious too, like super religious. Chicagoans. They've, my, my dad and sister, they've known all the same people. They remember their grandmother living with them as children. They remember making wine with her and sausage in their basement. I told you they're Italian. And they remember visiting the orphanage where they were adopted from to bring presents at Christmas. Their parents always brought the nuns and the orphans presents at Christmas. I would imagine that they also remember the fear. My dad and his sister. They came with being different and finding out why they're different from another kid on their block. You're adopted, this kid said pushing it out like a slur, meaning you're different, you're less than, you're wrong. My dad had asked his mom what it meant, what adopted meant, and if he was, was he adopted? Yes, his mom said. She couldn't have kids, which was a sort of sin in and of itself for a Catholic family at the time, like a failure. I'm sure he wondered over the next 50 years whether he was a mistake, whether he was wrong, whether there was anyone else out there like him, and then he met his brothers, He met a group of people, somehow like him, in small ways. Like they don't sound alike, and they're not Chicagoans, and they're not Espositos, but they're a little bit Italian, and they look so much alike. Like my dad and his brothers, they're all losing their hair in the same places, and they have the same eyes. We came out together, my dad and I, We found new family, and that strengthened our existing family. My girlfriend, who I woke up with this morning, she was there when my nana passed, my dad's mom, his adopted mom, his real mom. She was two days shy of 100 when she died, which really sucks if you think about the fact that I don't get any of that fucking blood. It's a really long life. (laughs) That was one year ago this week that she passed. We buried my nana on her 100th birthday, and while we were preparing for the funeral, my girlfriend took my dad's car and had it washed because he had asked her to so that it would be clean for the procession. My girlfriend did him that favor without question, and he trusted her enough to ask. My dad likes my girlfriend. They talk with one another. He gives her legal advice. They have a lot in common. And my girlfriend likes my dad. My dad's brothers also sent flowers for that mass a year ago. So one year ago this week, we stood there, all of us, in front of those flowers as a family. And I guess that's what I was thinking about yesterday. I was thinking about family and I was thinking about flowers. The same stuff that I'll have at my wedding. My lawful affirming, honest wedding where my dad will sing. It's very fucking awesome. I just want to add one thing. I just want to add one thing. Um, I cleared this story with my dad who also emailed like he uh, got up this morning and like emailed for some reason like 50 guys he went to high school with uh, to tell him to tell them that he 
that he was really happy about the decision. And I thought that was really fucking cute too. Like, he came out also. Yeah. It's great news. And, um, and my first girlfriend, because of social media, this is the cool thing, this is the cool part, uh, read this and told me uh, that she loved it and that I didn't have to change her name. So uh, her name is actually Callie. And she, that's, this is dedicated to her. So what's up, Cal? Thanks for the Facebook message with a huge weird smiley in it. (laughs) Okay, have a great night, guys. that I was gay cause I could draw my uncle was and I kept my room straight I told my mom tears rushing down my face she's like Ben you've loved girls since before pre-k tripping yeah I guess she had a point didn't she bunch of stereotypes all in my head I remember doing the math like yeah I'm good at little league a preconceived idea of what it all meant but those that like the same sex have the characteristics the right wing conservatives think it's a decision and you can be cured with some treatment and religion man-made rewiring of a predisposition playing god Oh nah, here we go America the brave Still fears what we don't know God loves all his children It's somehow forgotten But we paraphrase a book written 3,500 years ago I don't know And I can't change Even if I tried Even if I wanted to And I can't change Even if I tried That's all for this episode, folks. This is Ryan Lewis and Macklemore behind me now. You can always find links to the websites of the musicians and the storytellers on the listen pages at risk-show.com. On July 19th and 20th, Risk will be in Norfolk, Virginia. If you would like to be a part of that show, write to me at kevin at risk-show.com. On July 25th, we're in New York with Dan Kennedy... That same night, July 25th, we're in Los Angeles at the Nerdmelt Theater with Jay Moore. Don't forget that the first episodes of Risk are now available once again, remastered with all the advertising removed in the album section of iTunes. If you just look up Risk in the album section of iTunes, you can find those classic episodes, which are available no other place now for 99 cents each. On August 29th, 2013, we will be in Austin, Texas. So, hey, if you want to be a part of the Austin, Texas show, 
write to me at kevin at risk-show.com. And hey, if you want to be a part of any Risk episode at any time, no matter where you are in the world, check out the submissions page at risk-show.com. If you've got a story you'd like to tell, we'd like to help you tell it here. Don't forget, we also have a storytelling school at thestorystudio.org. One-on-one coaching, workshops for multiple people, workshops that you can take online in your own time at thestorystudio.org. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Risk Show and follow me on Twitter at the Kevin Allison. Risk is a very proud member of the Maximum Fun network of podcasts and we are listener supported. We can't do this without your help. We need the love of our supporters, our fans in the form of financial help. So you can do that if you go to MaximumFun.org slash donate and be sure to earmark your contribution, whether you become a member or just make a one-time donation, earmark that contribution and let them know one of the reasons you're there at least is because you love risk. We truly appreciate it. And it is what keeps us running. Leaves one thing left to say, folks. Today's the day. Take a risk. If I was gay, I would think hip-hop hates me. Have you read the YouTube comments lately? Man, us gay gets dropped on the daily. We become so numb to what we're saying. A culture founded from oppression. Yeah, we don't have acceptance for them. Call each other faggots behind the keys of a message board. A word rooted in hate, yet our genre still ignores it. Gay is synonymous with the lesser. It's the same hate that's caused wars from religion. Gender to skin color, the complexion of your pigment The same fight that led people to walkouts and sit-ins It's human rights for everybody, there is no difference Live on and be yourself When I was at church, they taught me something else If you preach hate at the service, those words aren't anointed That holy water that you soak in has been poisoned When everyone else is more comfortable remaining voiceless Rather than fighting for humans that have had their rights stolen I might not be the same, but that's not important No freedom till we're equal Damn right I support it March on with the veil over our eyes. We turn our back on the cause till the day that my uncles can be united by law. When kids aren't walking around the hallway, plagued by pain in their heart. A world so hateful, some would rather die than be who they are. And a certificate on paper isn't gonna solve it all, but it's a damn good place to start. No law is gonna change us. We have to change us. Whatever God you believe in, we come from the same one. Strip away the fear. Underneath it's all the same love. About time that we raised up. Keep
Is it normal? Normal? Well, what's normal? Let's see, if you're standing in a room, stripped, and it's dark, and you're hugging a person, loving them, and rubbing them up and down, and they're rubbing you, and rubbing them, and rubbing them, and rubbing them, and suddenly the light goes on, and it's the same sex, you've been trained to go... <laughs> But it felt okay.